0: Do you know that was a sort of semi-half-hearted response? <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you. And it's lovely to see you as well. <laughs> no, great to see you. Folks, we're going to jump uh, straight into uh, the next part of our emotional, spiritually, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality series. Um, I'm not going to spend time recapping, um, but it's all on the website uh, if you'd like to catch up with any of the talks. Um, there are some notes going around, um, there's quite a lot of information to give you today and I'd rather you have that on a piece of paper, um, some of it's just to look at for reference at a later stage, but it's just easier to put that on a piece of paper rather than feel that you have to write it down or try and remember. But today's talk is called um, Becoming People Who Love Well. It's actually called Becoming People Who Love Well Continued, because I'm kind of continuing something that Joe started the week before Easter. Um, You know, the, the essence of this series, right from the start, has been that when we do a really good job of loving God and connecting with his love, then we're better at loving ourselves and therefore hugely better at loving other people the truth is whatever we give to anybody else in our lives we give out of what we receive from God and this is kind of summed up all through the Bible but in this particular passage from John 15 which says as the father has loved me Jesus says so I have loved you now remain in my love Let me say that again. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands, and I remain in his love. I have told you this, so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Love one another with the love that I have given to you and shared with you. What does that look like? Loving one another is an easy thing to say, but sometimes a really hard thing to do. Love is practical. Loving other people is... Not always easy. And how we deal with other people, particularly when things are tough, that reflects our level of emotional maturity. You may remember this card that, uh, interesting, what, considering what we've just been playing, that Joe showed you a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if you've seen this one. Growing old is inevitable. Growing up is optional. And of course, Joe said, you know, in one sense, of course, um, it's really good to stay childlike and playful in life. And that's a really good thing. But actually, if you think about emotion, in the. In emotional health context growing up is really important and we all know people who while they might be physically adults might be grown fully physically would say that they still have some growing up to do emotionally in some countries it's common for psychologists to assess people not just with their physical age but to give someone an emotional age You know, physical age is pretty obvious, down to the number of birthdays, and especially as people are growing, with with younger people, tends to correlate to height and strength and cognitive function, whereas a psychological or an emotional age measures the person's emotional habits. And I've put on your sheets a table which... um, just which kind of goes through the stages of life in terms of what you would expect in terms of an emotional response from people at different life stages. Um, you can read the full details for yourself, but just a brief look at it. If someone's an infant, emotionally, you would expect them to look for others to take care of them. You would expect that they would find it difficult to enter another person's world. You expect that they would be driven by a need for instant gratification. You know, that's what is a normal and healthy emotional response for a baby or a toddler, an infant. As people grow into children, we find that their emotional responses you know, are such as this. They're happy as long as they get what they want. They can unravel quite quickly from stress or disappointment. They can be easily hurt. They can interpret a fairly common disagreement as a personal offence. You know, sometimes with children, when they don't get their way, they tend to complain or withdraw or manipulate or take revenge or become sarcastic. Those of you who have parents or just anybody who knows children will know that this is true, right? Yeah, okay, we've all been there. Um, sometimes children do struggle to calmly discuss their needs and their wants in a quite a mature and loving way. That's a normal part of behavior for a child. It's all part of growing up and learning to move. Through it, And most people move through it one way or the other with the help of parents or other grown-ups. Emotional adolescents tend to be defensive. They can feel threatened. They can feel alarmed by criticism. They can keep score of what they can give, of what they give, so that they can ask for something in return. I don't know if I'm sharing it appropriately, but there are a number of um, conversations in our family about who sits in the front of the car... And whose turn it was this time, and whose turn it was last time. And I have one particular child who has an incredible capacity for remembering pretty much every time and every journey, even from months ago. Last time we... No, never mind, I won't go there. Um, Adolescents tend to deal with conflict poorly and try and blame or appease others or go to a third party. They can become preoccupied with themselves. They sometimes struggle to listen to another person's pain they can also by the way be absolutely lovely and this isn't meant to be an entirely negative list it's just meant to pick up on how we handle emotional stress At different times of life and different stages of life. So it's normal that someone who's changing from a child to an adult will struggle to learn these things and won't get them all straight away. There's a lot to learn. And there is a lot to learn because this is how you would expect an adult to behave in terms of their emotional responses. An An emotional adult can ask for what they need or want or prefer. They can ask clearly and honestly. They can recognize their own feelings and manage their own emotions. They can state what they think without getting adversarial about it. You know, they can respect others without having to change them. Emotional adults can give people room to make mistakes and not be perfect. They can appreciate people for who they are and not just what they can bring, what they can contribute. People who've grown up and fully developed in their emotional. Health will be able to um, accurately assess their own limits. They'll be able to tune into others, to tune into their own emotional world. They'll be able to, they can talk to other people about what's going on with them without becoming so engrossed in it that they sort of start to pour out themselves. Do, do, you, do you know what I'm saying? Do you get what I'm trying to say? I mean, it's hard. This is, you know, this is scientific language. This is psychologists um, speak. Emotional. Adults have the capacity to resolve conflict maturely and negotiate solutions that consider the perspectives of others. That's what emotional maturity looks like, folks. And I think most of us are adults in the room, just about. And it's challenging, isn't it? I mean, it's challenging, but it is achievable. It's completely achievable with God's help. The problem comes when we as grown-ups find ourselves behaving in ways that are perhaps more in line with... An adolescent, or maybe even a child. Have you ever experienced that? Um, I was looking online, I found a, um, this list the signs of a childish adult from Psychology Today. Just a list of behaviors that show a psychologist that an adult still has some growing to do emotional escalation, blaming, lies, name calling, impulsivity, you know, just not being able to control impulses, just doing something now, needing to be the center of attention. Bullying, etc., etc. Does anyone know anyone who ever demonstrates any of these behaviours? Okay, good. Just a reality check there. Maybe in your line of work, there are certain people who are known to act in certain ways. This is a little bit of a cliche, um, with apologies to all actors. But I was a musician professionally for three years, and I worked in professional theatre shows. And there were one or two actors who I worked with who behaved a bit like your sort of typical quintessential actor. Do you know what I mean? They weren't in any way all like this, but there were one or two who really were. And they just loved to be the center of attention. We had them all back to our house after the show one night for drinks, do you remember? And it was like a competition to see who could become the center of attention the most. I've got a story to better that. No, I've got a story to better that. No, I can be louder than that. I mean, it was a bit of a cliche. I think they probably had a bit to drink, which probably helped. But do you remember? We were we were like, whoa. You know? Now, I'm not saying in any way that all actors are, you know, like to be the centre of attention. There are probably people in every profession who are like that. I just wonder, do, do you know anybody like that? People who like to be the centre of attention or people just seem to, who just seem to lack the ability to see things from someone else's point of view. Maybe they're in your family. Maybe they're in your community or even in your life group one pastor I know used to have a phrase and he used to, I think he used to write it in his diary and it was just E-G-R by a certain appointment and that stood for extra grace required <laughs> maybe you work with people who require a little bit of extra grace and can be hard to relate to maybe you work for people who are like that or maybe let's just be honest we recognise one or two of these traits in ourselves How do we practically grow in emotional maturity? How do we progress from adolescent behavior to adult behavior? This whole series and this whole book and this whole course has been about loving God and loving others, which are the two key commandments in the Bible. That process is called discipleship. And discipleship leads to freedom. Okay, discipleship, the word is similar to discipline. You see these incredible sports people, I was watching Match of the Day this morning with my son, and uh, we just saw some incredible goals. I mean, you know, they do only show you the highlights on Match of the Day. Um, but, But, you know, the ability to physically put a ball from here through there around there and score a goal is amazing. It doesn't come... Just like that, it comes from years of practice. If you want to be really good at something and have a total freedom just to be able to, you know, whatever it is, kick a ball in a certain way and score a goal, or run a marathon or run 100 metres, just whatever it is you do, Let's play the drums or the keyboard like one of these guys. It comes from practice. It comes from discipline. That's what discipleship is. You do the work so that you get the freedom. Do you you see what I'm saying? And that's what this is all about. So what does that look like? Well, you've heard the phrase, practice the presence of God. And that's something that we talk about a lot. Sir Gazzaro, in this book that we've been looking at, uses another phrase as well. He says, as we spend time with God, God invites us to practice the presence of people. In other words, having an awareness of his presence in all our daily relationships. We've been talking throughout this series about something called contemplative spirituality. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, in the past, I have associated that phrase with people who spend so much time contemplating spirituality that they kind of come over as a bit super spiritual, a bit extra holy, a bit out of it, a bit weird. Have you heard the phrase, so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good? Honestly, that's the sort of phrase, contemplative spirituality. In my head, that's in a a box over there with sort of monks and nuns and the desert fathers and people who are frankly a bit odd, you know? Truth is, why do I mean they're a bit odd? I think what I mean is, let me just be real about that now. It it has always suggested for me that in order to contemplate God properly, you have to be separate from people. That's what's implied in that. And it's true that to a certain extent, as we've spoken about Sabbath, we've spoken about that, we've spoken about the daily office. Getting a bit of time away in quiet is really helpful to connect with God. But that is not the model that we see Jesus doing, completely removing himself from people. We see him removing himself to relate to God and then spending loads of time with people. That's not what we see in his life. Contemplative spirituality, I've kind of redefined it in my head anyway, and it means simply spending regular, unhurried time thinking about and connecting with God and doing it intentionally, daily, weekly, as part of a pattern, being deliberate about spending time with God. And Jesus had a profound and contemplative or unhurried prayer life with his father. We read about it. He got up early. He stayed out late. He went away from people. His contemplative prayer life resulted in a profound and contemplative presence with people. When Jesus was with people, he wasn't in a rush. He was there to to be with people. There's an amazing man called Jean Varnier. He's a Catholic theologian and he started communities all over the world for people who have developmental disabilities and those who assist them. And he wrote this, Love is to reveal the beauty of another person to themselves. And that's kind of, for me, what Jesus seemed to do with everyone he met. To bring out the best in someone. His ability to really listen and pay attention to people was at the heart of his mission. And often Jesus couldn't help but be moved by compassion as he's talking to somebody. He acts out of that compassion to bring about God's kingdom transformation. Sometimes it's supernatural healing. Sometimes it's words of life. It's the same for us. Out of our own contemplative or unhurried time with god we are invited to be prayerfully present as prayerfully present with people sharing hope and life and just as vanya says helping people to see the beauty that they already have revealing beauty to themselves by contrast you know the religious leaders of jesus they never made that connection they were absolutely committed to loving god they had him as the lord of their lives but they completely missed the connection with people. They memorized the entire first five books of the Bible, prayed five times a day, tithed their income and gave to the poor, but never delighted in God's people or in any people, to be honest. And when they saw Jesus, who has claimed to be God, has claimed to know God, has claimed to speak with God's voice, also completely delighting in people, they were really threatened by that and they started to call him they called him a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners that's the kind of guy Jesus was he got a reputation for hanging around with dodgy types you know one of the pharisees in Matthew 22 it says one of the pharisees who was an expert in the law tested him teacher which is the greatest commandment in the law what was Jesus reply it's love the lord your god with all your heart And all your soul and all your mind. The first great commandment. This is the first and greatest one. And the second is like it. It's like it. It's also great. Love your neighbor as yourself. You cannot separate loving God and loving people. As Jesus said, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So think about the kind of people who you love to be around. I mean, who do you know who really embodies this? Who is it that you know that loves people so well in their life that you could be inspired by or learn from them? There have been a number of people in my life who I've been really blessed to know and who whenever I saw them, And whenever I see them now, will always be present with me, always speak words of kindness, affirmation and hope. Now I made a list, and maybe you might know some of these people, but I just wrote them down. These are just people who've been present in my life. Michael and June Flowers, Pete and Alison Bird, Richard and Di Bramwell, Bill Dixon, Hugh and Ginny Choir. (laughs) To name just but a few. These are people who've spent years, many, many years, deliberately and unhurriedly connecting with a loving God and it shows in the way that they connect with and love people these are people who like Jesus refuse to separate the practice of the presence of God from the practice of the presence of people this couple here are a case in point not many of you will know them they're called Michael and June Flowers and um, sadly they both died um, quite recently um, within a a couple of months of each other and I went to Michael's funeral up in Leeds um, just about a month and a half, two months ago These were my first small group leaders when I was about 15, 14, 15. They were the youth leaders in our church, and um, they were always kind and always affirming. Michael said to me, I'll never forget one time, I was about 15, and he said to me, you have a real talent for playing the piano, and people cry when you play. And he meant that the right way. He really did, and I, I took it the right way as well when you play people cry in a good way I heard this story about him he was an A&E doctor he was a um, consultant um, surgeon at A&E in Leeds General Infirmary for many years and I heard a story about him that Oh, I heard loads of stories about him. But I heard a story that I never really checked out if it was true, but I heard it, and I can imagine it was, that there was a guy who came into A&E because he had a broken leg, and his leg, he, was a, he was a homeless guy who lived on the streets. And um, so they, they cleaned him up, and they fixed his leg, and they put it in a plaster. You know, whatever you do, you a plaster pot thing. And um, they sent him back out. And um, he came back in some, some time later to have the pot removed. And he'd still been living on the streets, and he really stunk. And literally, he was in the room, and the story I heard was that each of the staff members went, no thanks, okay, and it got passed up and up and up until it came to the consultant, which was Michael. And so Michael went in there and said, okay, that's fine, if no one else can do this, I'll do this. And went in and took this guy's pot off to find some pretty horrendous stuff going on underneath but the point was this is the guy who would do that and you know I heard this other story when I was at his funeral which was that every morning he would go into work early and he would sit and pray for his whole department for all of the team and for the patients and for everything that was going on for me there's a massive connection between our our prayer life our connection with God and the way that we love people practically do you see that? Do you get what I'm saying? In John 13, Jesus says, By this will people know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So what does that love really look like? What does practical love look like? Because love is practical. It's a great decision. It's a lovely gushy emotion. But actually, love gets down to the nitty gritty. How do we get there? I mean, as I said, it's easy when things are going well. But it's tricky. When we rub up against each other, when we rub into conflicts, and how we deal with the inevitable disagreements and issues that will come up between us is a sign of our emotional maturity. And for me, practical love looks like really good communication. This is something I've learned over my life communication with God and communication with people. And poor communication prolongs bondage and stress and anxiety, and good communication brings freedom. And Jo talked a little bit about this last time. She talked about this thing, how to have a good fight. I don't know if you remember this. And about how important it is. Just some practical stuff about how to talk to somebody when you have a problem with them. Choose your battle, she said. Choose your timing and your emotions. And choose your words. And how we speak to one another in a conflict situation makes a massive difference on how that conversation goes and how the outcome goes. You know, Jesus teaches in Matthew, blessed are the merciful and the pure in heart and the peacemakers. He calls us to enter as peacemakers. And that's not always easy when you're quite stressed or full of anxiety or full of emotion because you feel hurt or or affronted or slighted by something that somebody has said. Coming into any conversation with a humble and gentle heart is really important. I brought a visual aid and I've left it upstairs. That's a shame, isn't it? I'm going to use this instead. Early in our marriage, you're going to have to imagine this is a cushion. Okay. I did actually bring a cushion from home, but I left it upstairs in the office. That's a shame. Um, it just goes to show you that we're not as slick as we like to be here. Um, Joe and I were taught, we went on a marriage workshop very early in our marriage, And we were taught this communication tool involving a cushion. Does anybody know this? Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Basically, it's been brilliant at helping us communicate and helping us resolve conflict. And it takes a bit of an effort, but it's really worthwhile. And I've kind of written the rules out for you on your sheet. But it's like this, you know, there's a problem between us. And somebody's quite cross, you know. And we need to do something about it. And so what the, the, the deal is that the person who has the cushion is the one who is allowed to speak. Okay, And we know, you're not allowed to fight for the cushion either. <laughs> okay, And you're not allowed to take the cushion, you, have to be able, you just have to give it. And so how it works is, if you've got a problem and you're sitting with somebody, and I would, we would sit on the sofa, and, uh, and I would hold the cushion, or Joe would hold the cushion, and the person speaking has to talk about what's going on about their thoughts and their feelings but not in an accusing way I don't know if you've noticed this but whenever you point a finger like that just do that with your hand there are three fingers pointing right back at you okay and so the point is to deal with the emotion separately and just to go in there and say you know what be brief explain clearly with as little emotion as possible I am feeling this because of this that happened when you did this, that and the other And you take your time and you explain. And you keep speaking until you feel that you've said what you need to say. Do you feel you've been understood? And then you stop. Okay? And that's fine, because that's actually quite easy to do. The hard part is the listening. Okay? And while you're still holding the cushion, the other person listens. And when you're the listener, you put your own agenda on hold, your feelings on hold, you're quiet, you're still, you focus on the person who's speaking and you allow them to speak until they finish. finished. You don't leap in and say, oh, but none of that. You're not allowed to do any of that. You acknowledge them, yes. It's a really good idea to nod your head and say, yes, okay, thank you. Get some body language so they know it's going in. When, they've appear, when they appear to have finished, a really good tip is to say, thank you. And is there any more? And when they have finished when they have finished and there isn't any more and before you give a response you still don't get the cushion the person who's listening then has to say back to the person who's spoken everything they've just heard them say so what i'm what i'm hearing you say is i've even put you I've put some little notes in here for anybody who wants to try this on the way home from church today <laughs> i wouldn't i wouldn't advise it in the car actually I understand that you are feeling this because of such and such. Now, have I expressed that correctly? Have I understood what you're saying? And if they haven't, then the person's allowed to go back and clarify. And you you just do this back and forth until you get to the point where the person listening has actually expressed fully what the person who's speaking wants them to hear and understand. Do you get me? And you'd be so surprised how disarming that is and only at that point when the person speaking feels that they've been heard and understood does the cushion get passed over and that's when the person listening sorry we're not going to do this really Joe and, I, Joe and I have thought about doing this live for you all but we decided it wasn't a good idea um, <laughs> mainly because we couldn't think of anything that we were rowing about <laughs> that's not true um <laughs> and that's when you get to say okay I understand that you're feeling this and let me explain why or oh dear I had no idea I'm so sorry and that's the thing with the cushion and we've taught our kids it such that they're like not the cushion again sometimes when we started this the temptation to jump in with a defence was so strong and it takes real discipline not to give your own point of view straight away but actually to give the other person the gift of being really heard. Do you understand me? You'd be amazed how it disarms emotion. And the point is you can't take the cushion, you only give it. You can only give it when you feel that you've been fully heard. And it's really important, the body language within that as well. You know, there's a whole thing about negotiation, negotiation skills. And they say that it will never work if you negotiate across the problem. You know, if you imagine yourself sitting up opposite the problem, the problem's here on a table, you're on one side, I'm on the other, and we're doing this across the problem. It never works. They say the best negotiators okay, bring themselves round so they're sitting next to each other with the problem in front of them and they're looking together. We were with a couple a few weeks ago who were having some, some struggles between the two of them. And we were sitting at a cafe and they were sitting opposite each other And every time one of them said something, it was like it bounced off the table and hit the other person. Such that I said, you know, when you two sit down for your next conversation, I want you to sit on the sofa together, side by side, with the problem in front of you. And that's how they suggest you do the cushion thing as well. Side by side. Not like these two. But they don't have a cushion, so maybe they just got good at it. Two other things I just want to cover, touch on briefly. Principles of good communication. Number one is about making assumptions. Now, just one thing. If, if speaking well and listening well when we're in conflict makes such a difference, I mean, it's a fantastic tool. You would not believe the number of people I have spoken to about this. The number of people I've spoken to during my work life and my kids and family and all of that. Just talking to them around the whole issues of how do we communicate well. You wouldn't believe the number of people who have missed each other, who have had arguments and fallouts and wars and marriage breakdowns because people just can't see eye to eye. They can't communicate together. This is such a vital skill. It's vital and it's valuable. And we need God's help to do it. But it brings such freedom. And that's all about what to do when you're in conflict. But these two things are, what to, are things that you can do to avoid conflict. And one of them is just very simply not making assumptions. Not making assumptions. What do I mean by that? It's a simple thing. It will eliminate unnecessary conflict in relationship. It's simply allowing you or me to check out that the thing that I'm thinking about you is accurate. I mean, how many times have you thought something about somebody and you've not checked it out and then you've gone down a line of, oh, I wonder if this is happening. You know, Joe said last time, one of our guiding values is that we will always believe the best about somebody. When we make assumptions about people without checking them out, it's likely that we're believing possibly even the worst about them. Certainly maybe something that isn't true. And that's going to affect how we act. So a theoretical example... Paul, I hope you don't mind, I'm going to use you here. I asked Paul to speak a few weeks ago, and he, did, he came up here and he spoke. And afterwards, we never got to talk. Okay, We just never caught up about it. And then, for various reasons, I didn't ask him for a few more weeks. This is not true, this is a theoretical example. Okay. So imagine that I've asked Paul to speak, and then I don't really catch up with him afterwards. And then you know, I don't really ask him again for a few weeks. I wonder what he's thinking. Potentially, he could be thinking, I wonder, if, I wonder what Nigel thought about that talk. He never spoke to me about it. Do you you think I might have upset him? He might be assuming, oh, I I must have upset him. I must have really annoyed him. I must have, that thing I said, that was so dodgy. Sorry, that would never happen, Paul, but you know know what I mean. (laughs) Oh, no, he must hate me. Or, I'm really rubbish at preaching. why, Why has he not asked me again to preach? He asked me to preach quite regularly. Why has he not asked me again? Has he got something against me? Oh no, my career's finished, what am I going to do? I'm going to be unemployed and out on the street and I can never talk to Nigel about it again and I'm going to have to quit now. And can you see how easy it is? And I'm I'm making a very silly example. But can you see how easy it is to make an assumption, not check it out, and then wander down a path in your mind that leads you in a certain way to a certain type of thinking that doesn't bring life and hope and freedom, that actually brings slavery and wrecks relationships? And basically, if you do that, you're judging someone. And the Bible's very clear about the danger of judging. So if you find that you are believing someone, here's a really simple tool. Three things. Permission, assumption, response. Just go up to somebody and say, excuse me, do I have the permission to check something out with you? Is it okay if I just ask you a question? I just want to check something with you. And assuming that they say yes, you say, I'm wondering if what you're actually thinking is, la, 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 la. Me and Joe have a shorthand for this. It's me saying, are you cross with me? (laughs) To which the answer is usually, no, I won't answer that. (laughs) No, no, not at all. Hardly ever. But the point is, it feels to me like you're thinking this. Is that accurate? Or I'm assuming this because of what you did. Is that true? And it gives the person the other person permission to say, either, well actually yes, can we have a conversation about it? In which case, you know, let's sit down and talk. Or actually that's not true at all. Why would you think that? You know? Well you haven't smiled at me for weeks. Pastor, you haven't spoken to me for a month. I've had that. I'm just sorry if it's you. (laughs) You know? In my theoretical example, Paul might ask, I'm assuming that you think that my last preach was off the mark and you're not asking me to do it again because of that. He might say that. Is that true? To which I can either respond, "Uh, well, what did you think? (laughs) No. I can say not at all. I've just been really busy and I haven't caught up with you. I'm so sorry. Okay. This will work with employees, or employers, or colleagues, or spouses, or housemates, or co-workers, or parents, or friends. The point here is about filling the communication gap. Okay? If there is a gap in communication between two people, then both people can fill it with their own ideas of what should be in the middle. And that's a problem. Because one person brings one set of ideas to it, and the other person brings the other set of ideas. Do you see what I'm saying? In my book, you can never over-communicate. I would rather talk for too long and say something too many times, as my family know, okay? They're laughing on the front row at me, okay? I would rather say something two or three times just to check that I've got the assumption that I'm working on is the same assumption that you're working on, because I just know that life works better that way. Rather than leaving it and saying, oh, I won't say anything, and then assuming. And that feels like sometimes that feels like quite a brave thing to start a conversation like that. But I reckon on the on the, I reckon most people would rather deal with the reality. And the last thing is clarifying expectations. It's kind of the flip side of this. One of the most common causes of conflict is when you have an expectation that isn't met or it's unclear. You know, I'm going to just read you two or three examples. These are straight out of that book. Okay, in quotes. Of course you're coming to the family event. We're important to you, aren't we? Or, I never knew this job involved doing all of this, you never told me that. Or, here's a good one, my grown-up son should know that I need him to come over and fix things I shouldn't need to ask him. Etc, etc. Or, I'm the only one who cares for my ageing parents, my siblings expect me to do everything and don't seem to care. Or, if that person really cared about me, they would call me. Have you ever thought that? And as you can see... These mismatches create havoc in workplaces and classrooms and friendships and dating relationships and marriages and sports teams and families and churches. And yet it's so easy to avoid with just some simple, proactive, thought through communication. And so there's a little list there. Most um, expectations are either unconscious or unrealistic or unspoken or unagreed. You know? somebody has this unconscious expectation of us. You know, I thought you were going to do this and then I'm cross that you didn't, but they never told you. Or they're unrealistic. They're just like, you know, that you have all the time in the world, which you don't. My children often have unrealistic expectations of me. But I thought you could fix this and do everything for me, Daddy. I'm sorry. (laughs) We never talked about that. You're just making an an assumption there. You're just, you know, that's your expectation. And to re-establish them, conversations need to be based on what's conscious expectations that are conscious realistic spoken and agreed preferably ri- preferably written down i find writing things down really helpful now this might see you know examples in our family have been in the past how long each person spends in the bathroom in the morning have you ever thought out about that one And actually, we got down at one point to having allotted times. Like, this is your bathroom time, and this is your bathroom time. Okay, we just have to have these out. We have to talk them out. How many hours we might spend at work? How long we might be on a team at church for? You know, you might join the catering team, and they might say, right, the expectation is that you'll be here forever. (laughs) You will never leave this team. Never, ever. You will do the coffee here once a month for the next 25 years. We try and say, no, join for six months and then join for another six months because we want to be clear about expectations. How you might spend time together. Who's responsible for this? And when there's a missed expectation, there's a communication gap. And it's really important to take time to re-establish expectations. I'm, I'm almost done. For me, proactive communication is really, really key to how I love people practically. Over-communication for me is always preferable to gaps because gaps allow people to put their own stuff in it and when people put their own stuff in it, there's a mismatch and that tends to be what leads to conflict. Don't underestimate the power of clear communication in any relationship because I think all people are made in the image of God, which they are. They're worthy of honour and respect and kindness and no matter how irritating or difficult or challenging they may be, Or their behaviour might be. The way that we practically show love to people. Especially to those people. How we deal with them. How we treat them. How we speak to them. How we practically show kindness and love. That's a measure of our emotional maturity. And that is a measure of how much God is at work in our lives. So for me love looks like good communication. And good communication. Good communication with God. God. And good communication with people. And that brings about freedom. And that's what we want, isn't it? Thank you for listening. I'm done. Do you want to come and do some ministry?